Section 1, Part 4 When I arrived in Basra, I settled in a mosque. The imam of the mosque was a Sunni person of Arabic origin named Sheikh Umar Thai. When I met him, I began to chat with him. Yet he suspected me at the very beginning and subjected me to a shower of questions. I managed to survive this dangerous chat as follows. I am from Turkey's Irda region. I was a disciple of Ahmed Effendi of Istanbul. I worked for a carpenter named Khalid. I gave him some information about Turkey which I had acquired during my stay there. Also, I said a few sentences in Turkish. The imam made an eye signal to one of the people there and asked him if I spoke Turkish correctly. The answer was positive. Having convinced the imam, I was very happy. Yet, I was wrong, because a few days later I saw that the imam suspected that I was a Turkish spy. Afterwards I found out that there was some disagreement and hostility between him and the governor appointed by the Ottoman Sultan. Having been compelled to leave Sheikh Umar Effendi's mosque, I rented a room in an inn for travellers and foreigners and moved there. The owner of the inn was an idiot named Murshid Effendi. Every morning he would disturb me by knocking hard at my door to wake me up as soon as the azan called to prayer, for morning prayer was called. I had to obey him. So I would get up and perform the morning prayer. Then he would say, You shall read Quran al-Karim after morning prayer. When I told him that it was not fard, an act commanded by Islam to read Quran al-Karim, and asked him why he should insist so much, he would answer, Sleeping at this time of day will bring poverty and misfortune to the inn and the lodgers. I had to carry out this command of his, for he said otherwise he would send me out of the inn. Therefore, as soon as the azan was called, I would perform morning prayer and then read Quran al-Karim for one hour. One day, Murshid Effendi came to me and said, Since you rented this room, misfortunes have been befalling me. I put it down to your being unmarried, which pretends ill omen. You shall either get married or leave the inn. I told him I did not have property enough to get married. I could not tell him what I had told Ahmed Effendi, for Murshid Effendi was the kind of person who would undress me and examine my genitals to see whether I was telling the truth. When I said so, Murshid Effendi reproved me, saying, What a weak belief you have! Haven't you read Allah's ayat purporting, If they are poor, Allah will make them rich with his kindness? No Surah Ayat 32 I was stupefied. At last I said, All right, I shall get married. But are you ready to provide the necessary money, or can you find a girl who will cost me nothing? After reflecting for a while, Mushid Effendi said, I don't care. Either get married by the beginning of Rajab month or leave the inn. There were only 25 days before the beginning of the month of Rajab. Incidentally, they'd be mentioned the Arabic months. Muharram, Safar, Rabi'ul Awal, Rabi'ul Akhir, Jamazi'ul Awal, Jamazi'ul Akhir, Rajab, Shaban, Ramadan, Shawal, Zilkada, Zilhijjah, their months are neither more than 30 days nor below 29. They are based on lunar calculations. 
Taking a job as an assistant to a carpenter, I left Murshid Effendi's inn. We made an agreement on a very low wage, but my lodging and food were to be at the employer's expense. I moved my belongings to the carpenter's shop well before the month of Rajab. The carpenter was a man of his word. He treated me as if I were his son. He was a Shiite from Khorasan, Iran, and his name was Abdurriza. Taking advantage of his company, I began to learn Persian. Every afternoon, Iranian Shiites would meet at his place and talk on various subjects, from politics to economy. More often than not, they would speak ill of their own government and also the caliph in Istanbul. Whenever a stranger came in, they would change the subject and begin to talk on personal matters. They trusted me very much. However, as I found out later on, they thought I was an Azerbaijani because I spoke Turkish. From time to time, a young man would call at our carpenter's shop. His attire was that of a student doing scientific research, and he knew Arabic, Persian and Turkish. His name was Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab Najdi. This youngster was an extremely arrogant and short-tempered person. While verbally abusing the Ottoman government very much, he would never speak ill of the Iranian government. The common ground which made him and the shop owner Abdurriza so friendly was that they were both inimical towards the caliph in Istanbul. But how was it possible that this young man, who was a Sunni, understood Persian and was friends with Abdurriza, who was a Shiite? In this city, Sunnis pretended to be friendly and even brotherly with Shiites. Most of the city's inhabitants understood both Arabic and Persian, and many people understood Turkish as well. Muhammad of Najd was a Sunni outwardly. Although most Sunnis censured Shiites, in fact they say that Shiites are disbelievers, this man never would revile Shiites. According to Muhammad of Najd, there was no reason for Sunnis to adapt themselves to one of the four madhabs. He would say, Allah's book does not contain any evidence pertaining to these madhabs. He purposefully ignored the Ayat al-Karimahs on this subject and slighted the Hadith Sharifs. Concerning the matter of four madhabs, a century after the death of their Prophet Muhammad, Allah salam, four scholars came forward from among Sunni Muslims. Abu Hanifa, Ahmed bin Hanbal, Malik bin Annas, and Muhammad bin Idris Shafi. Some caliphs forced the Sunnis to imitate one of these four scholars. They said no one except these four scholars could perform ijtihad in Quran al-Karim or with the Sunnah. This movement closed the gates of knowledge and understanding for Muslims. This prohibition of ijtihad is considered to have been the reason for Islam's standstill. Shiites exploited these erroneous statements to promulgate their sect. The number of Shiites was smaller than one-tenth that of Sunnis. But now they have increased and become equal with Sunnis in number. This result is natural. For Ijtihad is like a weapon. It will improve Islam's fiqh, Islamic law based on teaching of the Quran al-Karim and Hadith, and renovate the understanding of Quran al-Karim and Sunnah. The prohibition of ijtihad, on the other hand, is like a decayed weapon. It will confine the madhabs within a certain framework. This, in its turn, means to close the gates of inference, 
and to disregard the time's requirements. If your weapon is decayed and your enemy is perfect, you are doomed to be beaten by your enemy sooner or later. I think the clever ones of the Sunnis will reopen the gate of Ijtihad in the future. If they do not do this, they will become the minority, and the Shiites will receive a majority in a few centuries. However, the Imam's leaders of the four Madhabs hold the same creed, the same belief. There is no difference among them. Their difference is only in worships. And this, in turn, is a facility for Muslims. The Shiites, on the other hand, parted into twelve sects, thus becoming a decayed weapon. There is detailed information in this respect in the book Milal wa Nihal. The arrogant youngster Muhammad of Najd would follow his nafs, a malignant force in man that is anemious to Allah in understanding the Quran al-Karim and the Sunnah. He would completely ignore the views of scholars, not only those of the scholars of his time and the leaders of the four madhabs, but also those of the notable sahabas such as Abu Bakr and Umar. Whenever he came across a verse of the Quran al-Karim which he thought was contradictory with the views of those people, he would say, The Prophet said, I have left the Quran and the Sunnah for you. He did not say, I have left the Quran, the Sunnah, the Sahaba and the Imams of Madhabs for you. Footnote This statement of his denies the Hadith Sharif which commands us to follow the Sahaba. Therefore, the thing which is fard is to follow the Quran al-Karim and the Sunnah no matter how contrary they may seem to be to the views of the Madhabs or to the statements of the Sahaba and scholars. Footnote Today, in all the Islamic countries, ignorant and traitorous people disguised as religious people have been attacking the scholars of Al-Sunnah. They have been commending Wahhabism in return for large sums of money they received from Saudi Arabia. All of them used the above-mentioned statements of Muhammad of Najd as a weapon on every occasion. The fact is that none of the statements made by the scholars of Al-Sunnah or the four Imams is contrary to Quran al-Karim and Hadith Sharif. They did not make any additions to these sources, but they explained them. Wahhabis, like their British prototypes, are fabricating lies and misleading Muslims. During a dinner conversation at Abdul Risa's place, the following dispute took place between Muhammad of Najd and a guest from Qum, a Shiite scholar named Sheikh Jawad. Sheikh Jawad Since you accept that Ali was a mujahid, why don't you follow him like Shiites? Muhammad of Najd Ali is no different from Umar or other Sahabas. His statements cannot be of a documentary capacity. Only the Quran al-Karim and the Sunnah are authentic documents. The fact is that statements made by any of the Sahabat al-Kiram are of a documentary capacity. Our Prophet commanded us to follow any one of them. Footnote A Muslim who has seen the beautiful, blessed face of Muhammad is called Sahaba. Plural for Sahaba is Sahabat al-Kiram or Ashtab. Sheikh Jawad Since our Prophet said, I am the city of knowledge and Ali is its gate, 
Shouldn't there be difference between Ali and the other Sahaba? Muhammad of Najd. If Ali's statements were of documentary capacity, would not the Prophet have said, I have left you the Quran, the Sunnah, and Ali? Sheikh Jawad. Yes, we can assume that he, the Prophet, said so, for he stated in a Hadith Sharif, I leave behind me Allah's book and my Al-Hibayat, family of the Prophet Muhammad, Allah salam. And Ali, in his turn, is the greatest member of the Al-Hibayat. Muhammad of Najd denied that the Prophet had said so. Sheikh Jawad confuted Muhammad of Najd with convincing proofs. However, Muhammad of Najd objected to this and said, You assert that the Prophet said, I leave you Allah's book and my Al-Hibayat. Then what has become of the Prophet's Sunnah? Sheikh Jawad Sunnah, the Messenger of Allah, is the explanation of the Quran. The Messenger of Allah said, I leave you Allah's book and my Al-Hibayat. The phrase Allah's book includes the Sunnah, which is an explanation of the former. Muhammad of Najd Inasmuch as the statements of Al-Hibayat are the explanations of the Quran, why should it be necessary to explain it by hadiths? Sheikh Jawad When Hazrat Prophet passed away, his Ummah, Muslims, considered that there should be an explanation of the Quran which would satisfy the time's requirements. It was for this reason that Hazrat Prophet commanded his Ummah to follow the Quran, which is the original, and his Al-Ibayat, who were to explain the Quran in a manner to satisfy the time's requirements. I liked this dispute very much. Muhammad of Najd was motionless in front of Sheikh Jawad, like a house sparrow in the hands of a hunter. Muhammad of Najd was the sort I had been looking for. For his scorn for the time scholars, his slighting even the earliest four caliphs, his having an independent view in understanding the Quran al-Karim and the Sunnah were his most vulnerable points to hunt and obtain him. So different this conceited youngster was from that Ahmed Effendi who had taught me in Istanbul. That scholar, like his predecessors, was reminiscent of a mountain. No power would be able to move him. Whenever he mentioned the name of Abu Hanifa, he would stand up, go and make an ablution. Whenever he meant to hold the book of Hadith named Bukhari, he would again make an ablution. The Sunnis trust this book very much. Muhammad of Najd, on the other hand, disdained Abu Hanifa very much. He would say, I know better than Abu Hanifa did. Footnote. Some ignorant people without a certain madhab today say so too. In addition, according to him, half of the book of Bukhari was wrong. Footnote. This allegation of this person shows that he was quite unaware of the knowledge of Hadith. As I was translating these confessions of Hemphas into Turkish, Footnote Hemphas' confessions were translated into Turkish and, together with the author's explanations, formed a book. This version is the English translation of that Turkish book. I remembered the following event. I was a teacher in a high school. During a lesson, one of my students asked, Sir, if a Muslim is killed in a war, will he become a martyr? Yes, he will, I said. Did the Prophet say so? Yes, he did. Will he become a martyr if he is drowned in sea too? Yes, was my answer. 
and in this case he will attain more Thoab, rewards presented in the hereafter for good deeds and piety. Then he asked, Will he become a martyr if he falls from an airplane? Yes, he will, I said. Did our prophet state these too? Yes, he did. Upon this, he smiled in a triumphant air and said, Sir, were there airplanes in those days? My answer to him was as follows. My son, our prophet has 99 names. Each of his names stands for a beautiful attribute he was endowed with. One of his names is Jamal Ukalim. He would state many facts in one word. For example, he said, He who falls from a height will become a martyr. The child admitted this answer of mine with admiration and gratitude. By the same token, Quran al-Karim and Hadith Sharifs contain many words, rules, commandments and prohibitions, each of which denotes various other meanings. The scientific work carried on to explore these meanings and to apply the right ones to the right cases is called Ijtihad. Performing Ijtihad requires having profound knowledge. For this reason, the Sunnis prohibited ignorant people from attempting Ijtihad. This does not mean to prohibit Ijtihad. After the 4th century of the Hegiral era, no scholars were educated so highly as to reach the grade of an absolute mujtahid, scholar profoundly learned enough to perform ijtihad. Therefore, no one performed ijtihad, which in turn naturally meant the closure of the gates of ijtihad. Towards the end of the world, Isa, Jesus Allah, salam, shall descend from heaven, and Mahdi, the expected Islamic hero, shall appear. These people shall perform ijtihad. Our Prophet stated, After me, Muslims shall part into 73 groups. Only one of these groups shall enter paradise. When he was asked who were to be in that group, he answered, Those who adapt themselves to me and my Ashab. In another Hadith Sharif, he added, My Ashab are like celestial stars. You will attain Hidayat, guidance, if you follow any one of them. In other words, he said, you will attain the way leading to paradise. The Jew of Yemen, Abdullah bin Saba by name, instigated hostility against the Ashab among Muslims. Those ignorant people who believed this Jew and who bore enmity against the Ashab were called Shi, Shiite, and people who obeyed the Hadith Sharifs, loved and followed the Sahabat al-Kiram were called Sunni. I established a very intimate friendship with Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab of Najd. I launched a campaign of praising him everywhere. One day I said to him, You are greater than Omar and Ali. If the Prophet were alive now, he would appoint you as his caliph instead of them. I expect that Islam will be renovated and improved in your hands. You are the only scholar who will spread Islam all over the world. Muhammad, the son of Abdul Wahhab, and I decided to make a new interpretation of the Quran al-Karim. This new interpretation was to reflect only our points of view, and would be entirely contrary to those explanations made by the Sahaba, by the Imams of Madhabs, and by the Mufasis, deeply learned scholars specialized in the explanation of the Quran al-Karim. 
We were reading the Quran al-Karim and taking on some of the ayats. My purpose in doing this was to mislead Muhammad. After all, he was trying to present himself as a revolutionist and would therefore accept my views and ideas with pleasure, so that I should trust him all the more. On one occasion I said to him, Jihad, fighting, struggling for Islam, is not fard. He protested, Why shouldn't it be, despite Allah's commandment, make war against disbelievers? Surah Toba, Ayat 73 I said, Then why didn't the Prophet make war against the Munafiks, those who hide their disbelief in any of the Nas of the Qur'an al-Karim with open meanings, despite Allah's commandment, make jihad against disbelievers and Munafiks? Surah Toba, Ayat 73 On the other hand, it is written in Muahibu ila dunya that 27 jihads were performed against disbelievers. Their swords are exhibited in Istanbul's museums. Munafiks would pretend to be Muslims. They would perform salat with the Messenger of Allah in the Masjid in Nawabi during the days. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam knew them, yet he did not say, you are a Munafik, to any of them. If he had made war against them and killed them, people would say, Muhammad alayhi salam killed people who believed in him. Therefore, he made verbal jihad against them. The jihad, which is fard, is performed with one's body and or with one's property and or with one's speech. The ayat Karima quoted above commands to perform jihad against disbelievers. It does not define the type of the jihad to be performed. The jihad against disbelievers must be performed by fighting, and jihad against munafiks is to be performed by informing and advice. This ayat karima covers these types of jihad. He said, The Prophet made jihad against them with his speech. I said, Is the jihad which is fard commanded the one which is to be done with one's speech? He said, Rasulullah made war against the disbelievers. I said, The Prophet made war against the disbelievers in order to defend himself, but the disbelievers intended to kill him. He nodded. At another time I said to him, Muttanika is permissible. Footnote. Nika means a marriage contract as prescribed by Islam. Muttanika means a contract made between a man and a woman to cohabit for a certain period of time. Islam prohibits this type of marriage. He objected. No, it is not. I said, Allah declares in return for the use you make of them, give them the mecher, mandatory payment you have decided upon. Surah Nisa, Ayat 24. He said, Umar prohibited two types of mutab practice existent in his time, and said he would punish anyone who practiced it. I said, You both say that you are superior to Umar and follow him. In addition, Umar said he prohibited it, though he knew that the Prophet had permitted it. Footnote Muttanika is similar to today's practice of having a mistress. It is permissible according to the Shiites. Umar, radi Allah ta'ala ankh, did not say so. 
Like all other Christians, the English spy bears hostility towards Hazrat Umar and inveighs against him on this occasion too. It is written in the book Hujaj i Khatiya. Umar radiallahu ta'ala ankh said that Rasulullah had forbidden Mutanikka and that he was not going to permit a practice forbidden by the Messenger of Allah. All the Sahabad al-Kiram supported the statement of the Caliphs. Among them was Hazrat Ali, radiallahu ta'ala ankh, too. Please see the book, Documents of the Right Word. Why do you leave aside the Prophet's word and obey Umar's word? He did not answer. I knew that he was convinced. I sensed that the Muhammad of Najd desired a woman at that moment. He was single. I said to him, Come on, let us each get a woman by a mutanika. We will have a good time with them. He accepted with a nod. This was a great opportunity for me, so I promised to find a woman for him to amuse himself. My aim was to allay the timidity he had about people. But he stated it a condition that the matter be kept as a secret between us, and that the woman not even be told what his name was. I hurriedly went to the Christian woman who had been sent forth by the Ministry of the Commonwealth with the task of seducing the Muslim youth there. I explained the matter to one of them. She accepted to help, so I gave her the nickname Safiya. I took Muhammad of Najd to her house. Safiya was at home alone. We made a one-week marriage contract for Muhammad of Najd, who gave the woman some gold in the name of Mech. Thus we began to mislead Muhammad of Najd, Safiya from within and I from without. Muhammad of Najd was thoroughly in Safiya's hands now. Besides, he had tasted the pleasure of disobeying the commandments of the Shariat under the pretext of freedom of ijtihad and ideas. The third day at the Muttanikka, I had a long dispute with him over that hard drinks were not haram, forbidden by Islam. Although he quoted many ayats and hadiths showing that it was haram to have hard drinks, I cancelled all of them and finally said, it is a fact that Yezid and the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphs had hard drinks. Were they all miscreant people, and you are the only adherent of the right way? They doubtless knew the Quran and the Sunnah better than you do. They inferred from the Quran and the Sunnah that the hard drink is makhru, not haram. Also, it is written in Jewish and Christian books that alcohol is mubah, permitted. All religions are Allah's commandments. In fact, according to a narrative, Umar had hard drinks until the revelation of the ayat, You have all given it up, haven't you? Surah Maida, Ayat 91. If it had been haram, the Prophet would have chastised him. Since the Prophet did not punish him, hard drink is halal. The fact is that Umar, Radi Allah Hutala Ankh, used to take hard drinks before they were made haram. He never drank after the prohibition was declared. If some of the Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphate took alcoholic drinks, this would not show that drinks with alcohol are makru. It would show that they were sinners, that they committed haram. With the Ayat Karimah quoted by the spy, as well as other Ayat Karimahs and Hadith Sharifs, shows that drinks with alcohol are haram. 
It is stated in Riyadh Unnasihin, formerly it was permissible to drink wine. Hazrat Umar, Saad ibn Waqqas and some other sahabas used to drink wine. Later, the 219th ayat of Surah Baqarah was revealed to declare that it was a grave sin. Sometime later, the 42nd ayat of Surah Nisa was revealed and it was declared, Do not approach the Salats when you are drunk. Eventually, the 93rd ayat of Surah Maida came and wine was made haram. It was stated as follows in Hadith Sharifs. If something would intoxicate in case it were taken in a large amount, it is haram to take it even in a small amount. And wine is the gravest of sins. And do not make friends with a person who drinks wine. Do not attend his funeral when he dies. Do not form a matrimonial relationship with him. And drinking wine is like worshipping idols. And Allah curse him who drinks wine, sells it, makes it, or gives it. Muhammad of Naj said, According to some narratives, Umar drank alcoholic spirits after mixing it with water and said it was not haram unless it had an intoxicating effect. Umar's view is correct, for it is declared in the Quran, The devil wants to stir up enmity and grudge among you and to keep you from doing dikhu remembering Allahu Tala of Allah and from Salat by means of drinks and gambling. You will give these up now, won't you? Surah Maida, Ayat 91 Alcoholic spirits will not cause the sins defined in the ayat when they do not intoxicate. Therefore, hard drinks are not haram when they don't have an intoxicating effect. Footnote However, our Prophet stated, if something would intoxicate in case it were taken in a large amount, it is haram to take even a small amount of it which would not intoxicate. I told Sophia about this dispute we had on drinks and instructed her to make him drink a very strong spirit. Afterwards she said, I did as you said and made him drink. He danced and united with me several times that night. From then on, Safiya and I completely took control of Muhammad of Najd. In our farewell talk, the Minister of the Commonwealth had said to me, We captured Spain from the disbelievers, he means Muslims, by means of alcohol and fornication. Let us take all our lands back by using these two great forces again. Now I know how true a statement it was. One day I broached the topic of fasting to Muhammad of Najd. It stated in the Quran, Your fasting is more auspicious for you. Surah Baqarah, Ayat 184 It is not stated that fasting is fard, a plain commandment. Then fasting is sunnah, not fard, in the Islamic religion. He protested and said, Are you trying to lead me out of my faith? I replied, One's faith consists of the purity of one's heart, the salvation of one's soul, and not committing a transgression against others' rights. Did not the Prophet state, Faith is love? Did not Allah declare in Quran al-Karim, Worship your Rab, Allah, until Yakin comes to you? Surah Hujjah, Ayat 99 Footnote 
All the Islamic books agree that Yakin in this context means death. Hence this ayat Karima purports, worship till death. Then, when one has attained Yakin pertaining to Allah and the Day of Judgment, and beautified one's heart and purified one's deeds, one will become the most virtuous of mankind. He shook his head in reply to these words of mine. Once I said to him, Salat is not fard. How is it not fard? Allah declares in the Quran, Perform Salat to remember me. Surah Taha, Ayat 14 Then the aim of Salat is to remember Allah. Therefore, you might as well remember Allah without performing Salat. He said, Yes, I have heard some people do dhikr, remembering Allah Ta'ala, instead of performing Salat. Footnote. Our Prophet stated, The Salat is Islam's pillar. He who performs Salat has constructed his faith. He who does not perform Salat has ruined his faith. And in another hadith, Perform Salat as I do. It is a grave sin not to perform Salat in this manner. What signifies the heart's purity is to perform Salat correctly. I was very much pleased with this statement of his. I tried hard to develop this notion and capture his heart. Then I noticed that he did not attach much importance to Salat and was performing it quite sporadically. He was very negligent, especially with the morning prayer, for I would keep him from going to bed by talking with him until midnight, so he would be too exhausted to get up for morning prayer. I began to pull down the shawl of belief slowly off the shoulders of Muhammad of Najd. One day I wanted to dispute with him about the Prophet too. From now on, if you talk with me on these topics, our relation will be spoiled and I shall put an end to my friendship with you. On this, I gave up speaking about the Prophet for fear of ruining all my endeavours once and for all. I advised him to pursue a course quite different from those of Sunnis and Shiites. He favoured this idea of mine, for he was a conceited person. Thanks to Safiya, I put a halter on him. On one occasion I said, I have heard that the Prophet made his Ashab brothers to one another. Is it true? Upon his positive reply, I wanted to know if this Islamic rule was temporary or permanent. He explained, It is permanent, but the Prophet Muhammad's halal is halal till the end of the world, and his haram is haram until the end of the world. Then I offered him to be my brother. So, we were brothers. From that day on, I never left him alone. We were together even in his travels. He was very important for me. For the tree that I had planted and grown, spending the most valuable days of my youth, was now beginning to yield its fruits. I was sending monthly reports to the Ministry of the Commonwealth in London. The answers I received were very encouraging and reassuring. Muhammad of Najd was following the path I had drawn for him. My duty was to imbue him with feelings of independence, freedom and scepticism. I always praised him, saying that a brilliant future was awaiting him. One day I fabricated the following dream. Last night I dreamt of our Prophet. I dressed him with the attributes I had learned from teachers of Islam. 
He was seated on a dais, raised platform. Around him were scholars that I did not know. You entered. Your face was as bright as halos. You walked towards the prophet, and when you were close enough, the prophet stood up and kissed between your both eyes. He said, You are my namesake, the heir to my knowledge, my deputy in worldly and religious matters. You said, O oh, messenger of Allah, I am afraid to explain my knowledge to people. You are the greatest, don't be afraid, replied the prophet. Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab was wild with joy when he heard the dream. He asked several times if what I had told him was true and received a positive answer each time he asked. Finally, he was sure I had told him the truth. I think from then on he was resolved to publicize the ideas I had imbued him with and to establish a new sect. Footnote The book Al Fajr Usadik Written by Jamal Sadki Jawawi of Baghdad, who was a professor of Akkadi Islamia, Islamic beliefs, in the Darul Fulun University of Istanbul, and passed away in 1936-1354, was printed in Egypt in 1905-1323, and reproduced by offset process by Hakikat Publishing in Istanbul. It is stated in the book. The heretical ideas of the Wahhabi sect were produced by Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab in Najd in 1730-1143. He was born in 1699-1111 and died in 1792-1207. The sect was spread at the cost of a considerable amount of Muslim blood by Muhammad bin Sud, the Emir of Dariya. Wahhabis called Muslims who would not agree with them as being aberrant. They said that all of them, non-Wahhabis, must perform the Hajj anew, even if they had performed it, and asserted that all their ancestors as well had been disbelievers for 600 years. They killed anyone who would not accept the Wahhabi sect, and carried off their possessions as booties. They imputed ugly motives to Muhammad, Alaihi Salam. They burned books of Fuk, Tafsir, and Hadith. They misinterpreted Quran al Karim in accordance with their own ideas. In order to deceive Muslims, they said they were in the Hanbali Mahdab. However, most Hanbali scholars wrote books refuting them and explaining that they were heretics. They are disbelievers because they call Haram as Halal and because they belittle prophets and their awliyah. The Wahhabi religion is based on ten essentials. 1. Allah is a material being. He has hands, a face and directions. This belief of theirs is similar to the Christian creed, Father, Son and Holy Ghost. 2. They interpret Quran al-Karim according to their own understanding. 3. They reject the facts reported by the Sahabat al-Kiram. 4. They reject the facts reported by Islamic scholars. 5. They say a person who imitates one of the four madhabs is a disbeliever. 6. They say non-Wahhabis are disbelievers. 7. 
They say a person who prays by making the Prophet and the Aliyah intermediaries between himself and Allahu Ta'ala will become a disbeliever. 8. They say it is haram to visit the Prophet's grave or those of the Aliyah. 9. He who swears on any being other than Allahu Ta'ala will become a Musrik. Those who attribute a partner or partners to Allahu Ta'ala that is, shirk, they say. 10. A person who makes a solemn pledge that anyone except Allahu Ta'ala or who kills an animal as a sacrifice by the graves of Aliyah will become a musrik, they say. In this book of mine, it will be proved by documentary evidences that all these 10 beliefs are wrong. These ten fundamentals of the Wahhabi religion are noticeably identical with the religious principles Hemphur prompted to Muhammad of Najd. The British published Hemphur's confessions as a means for Christian propaganda. In order to mislead Muslims' children, they wrote lies and fabrications in the name of Islamic teachings. Therefore, with a view to protecting our youth from this British trap, we published this book which is a correction of their lies and slanders.